So we are thrilled to welcome uh, Lizzo Reardon to our podcast today, uh, who is a true inspiration to many. And she has worked as a breast consultant, um, is an author, as well as having had breast cancer twice herself, and has a huge fan base on social media due to her dedication to educating the world and giving her time selflessly to help others. Liz also participates um, in the 5K Your Way, helping patients living with cancer get fit again and active, which is a fantastic campaign. Um, so thank you, Liz, for joining us uh, today. And it's so lovely to have you on our podcast. And we're excited to ask you so many questions that will be so valuable to so many. So Thanks for having me. And I hope I can help. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I think the best thing to probably start with is talking about breast care. Um, so from your perspective and from your experiences, um, both professionally, but also from your personal journey, um, what do you think is the most important message to women in terms of looking after their breasts and what can they be doing to help themselves? That's a great question. And I, we don't really get taught about that when you're growing up, when you're at school or university. And I think your breasts don't actually need much doing to them. They need a bit of support because breasts can be heavy. If you've got a 36C, then each breast weighs half a bag of sugar. It's like half a kilo, it's a lot. The larger your breasts are, the heavier they are, you can get back pain and lots of things like that. So it's really important to make sure your bra fits you properly. I, like many women, got measured when I was about 16 and that was my bra size for the rest of my life. Despite my weight changing, going up and down, it's like, no, it's wrong. And when, if you can't wait to take your bra off at the end of the day, it's the wrong size for you. Most of us wear the wrong size bra. You can go up a cup size in your period. So it's really important to make sure it fits you properly. But I think when it comes to breast health, the thing that most women will worry about is getting breast cancer. And it is common for women in their 20s and 30s to get lumps that aren't cancer, little benign growths and cysts, but you only know if you check your breasts. I never did. I'm a consultant breast surgeon. I thought it's never going to happen to me. And I got breast cancer at 40 and I never did it. And then I realized there were lots of people online telling you how to do it, but they're not telling you how to do it properly. And no one actually, actually teaches you how to do it properly. So I can kind of go through the basics there. Because when you're young, mammograms don't work. Your breasts are too dense for a cancer to show up. So your hands are all you have. What's really important is that you feel using the flat of your fingers. And what you're trying to do is to squash your breast tissue against your rib cage, seeing if you can feel a little lump sticking up. Now, if you've got very small breasts that you can't hold a pencil underneath, it doesn't matter what position you're in. But if your breasts are large and they're starting to droop, you ideally need to be lying at about 30 degrees, because what that does is lift the breast tissue up into your chest wall. If your breasts are hanging under each other, you're kind of feeling a double folded breast tissue and not the breast itself. So ideally, lying back in the bath or on a couple of pillows. And your breasts are like a teardrop. They kind of start at the armpit and they go all the way around and underneath the breast. And you need to feel all of it. There's some people go like a clock, going from like 12 o'clock to the nipple, then one o'clock, then two o'clock. Other people go around in circles and then feeling behind the nipple. It doesn't matter what you do, but it's really important that you check all of it. And if you're still having periods, you should do this in the middle of your cycle because that's when your breasts are less lumpy. Lots of people say online, feel them on the first, but that might not work for you. So ideally, middle of your cycle, if you're still having periods, and if you're not, then pick a day in the diary. So the first is fine. 
Oh, that's really good. And, and and from having spoken to you before, you also say make sure you really check around the nipple area too, don't you? Because people yes. miss that particular section. Exactly. And actually, before you, you feel you should look in the mirror, actually look in, look in the mirror at your breast, see what's normal, because they're not symmetrical. They're sisters, not twins. One will naturally be a bit bigger or lower or hairier than the other. And when you're looking in the mirror, if your breast is heavy, you want to lift them up to look underneath. You want to put your hands above your head and your hands on your hips and push in. And what that does is tense the muscles and connective tissue underneath the breast and can cause a dimple to appear. And that may be the earliest sign of breast cancer. Okay, that's really interesting. So, so how does um when when if people have had implants, how does it yeah. change how they should be checking their breasts? Is it similar or is there a different technique? It is very similar. It can, What your breast will feel like will depend on whether the implant is put underneath the breast tissue. And that tends to give you more of an artificial Jordan posh spice look with a very rounded breast. Or if it's put underneath the muscle where we say you get a, a gentler takeoff. So it's less obvious. Basically, the implant is pushing your breast tissue forward. So you still feel the breast tissue on top of the implant and feel all the way around. It may feel a bit firmer, but hopefully both sides will feel the same. And if you have implants, you need to let when you call for a screening mammogram, you need to let them know because you often need to have it done in a hospital. They have special paddles to squish the breast tissue off the top of the implant. Right. Wow. And, and I guess is there, is there a, a risk of damaging? Do people get worried about damaging their implants? And yeah, a mammogram won't damage the implant because we don't actually mammogram the implant. We kind of use paddles that kind of squish the breast tissue off the implant and leave it alone. I have heard stories of someone who had a Thai massage where someone stands on your back and she had implants and one of them burst, but that's an awful lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> pretty solid things. They're tested to a huge amount of pressure, so a mammogram won't do it. And you're also looking around the nipple area too for any yes, uh, uh, like some uh, crusting. Yeah. So nipple discharge is completely normal. It's disgusting when you get it. It can be any color, creamy, greeny, browny, depending on the bacteria in the air. Like your snot can change color depending. Some days it's browny, some days it's crusty and creamy. It's completely normal. If you have nipple discharge, don't squeeze it. Because when you squeeze the nipple to get rid of the discharge, you're encouraging the ducts to produce more. And they know you want to squeeze it to get rid of it, but it'll just keep filling up. So just try and leave it alone if you have nipple discharge. But if it is clear, so like crystal clear like water, or if it is bloody, that could be a sign of breast cancer in the ducts around the nipple. And some women will notice that when they get out of bed in the morning and they see blood on their nighty or the inside of their bra, and that could be a sign of breast cancer. And you can also get eczema around the nipple, which is very, very common. But sometimes if it's just one nipple, that can be a thing called Paget's disease, where it's like an ulceration of the skin around the nipples. So any changes do need to be checked out. Okay, that's really interesting, isn't it? And, and I guess if it's greeny type discharge, does that indicate that it could be infected? Um, no, um, no, it's just the normal colour, like your snot can be green at times. A nipple infection, you would have pain and there'd be a hot, red, angry, sore spot around the nipple. You can get blocked ducts, very common in smokers. And discharge is more common in smokers. Actually stopping smoking can reduce the frequency of the discharge. Wow. And what's your advice for people who might have breast pain? I've heard um, other consultants before talk about reducing caffeine, um, maybe going to non-wired bras to help reduce breast pain. Um, is there evidence behind this? I think the first thing to say is there are two types of breast pain. There's the pain that you get in both breasts that's cyclical, that you get every month with your period. 
It's common in your teens and 20s. And you can get it again around the time of the menopause just because of fluctuating hormone levels. And your breasts can be full of tiny cysts, which is common in your 30s. And when you're about to have a period, the breasts are like, oh, oh, they're really sore. The cysts get big. It's painful. And when you have a period, the hormones die down. The cysts get smaller. That cyclical hormonal breast pain is quite difficult to treat because it's kind of related to how your breasts respond to your body's hormones. There's nothing that really, really works. Some people suggest taking um, evening primrose oil, but it's a massive dose, about 300 milligrams, which is like five or six capsules a day. And you have to take it every day for three months to prove it's not working. So often it's knowing it's not cancer to stop the alarm bell ringing and potentially wearing a bra in bed at night. A non-wide bra can help support the breast tissue. Simple painkillers can help. Whereas pain that you get in one breast, um, 99% of the time is actually coming from the muscles of your back and your neck and your chest wall. Because the nerves that supply those also supply sensation to the breast skin. And often when I would be examining women, their breasts are sore, but when I get them to lie on their side and I prod along the rib cage, it's that that makes them jump. Women get it just because it's Tuesday. It doesn't matter how big or how small your breasts are. Sometimes it's the side that you wear a heavy handbag on. And often it is relaxing the muscles in the back and the neck. So I tell women, go and have a shoulder massage. Go and release all that tension. Regular stretching to open out the shoulder cage and the rib cage. And again, making sure your bra fits you properly. Most women, they don't want to be a bigger cup. The thought of being a D or an E or an F cup is like, oh my goodness. But I was, a, I thought I was a 34A. I was actually a 30D because your breasts are wider than you think. And they often go around underneath your armpit. And if you, the wire isn't catching all that breast tissue, it can dig in. So often it's getting, going shopping for a bra. Underwired bras shouldn't cause breast pain at all. If they do, they're the wrong size. Okay. And so, um, so from, from that, yeah. I know some people think that having a non-wired bra might be healthier and could reduce yeah. their risk of breast cancer. But yeah. This is a really common myth. Um, bras do not cause breast cancer. Underwired bras do not cause breast cancer. That was started off the back of an article in the 1950s. Sports bras do not cause breast cancer. That's the latest thing. Sports bras are compressing the bras and stopping, lymph- stopping lymphatic drainage so the toxins can't drain to the nodes in the armpit and cause breast cancer. But that doesn't work because the lymph vessels are all internal in the breast tissue. You may get a bit swollen because it's tight, but that fluid will drain. So bras are completely safe and healthy. You do not need to wear them. It won't do you any harm if you do. It's, it's personal choice. Let's talk about the um, potential risk factors for breast cancer in terms of what we definitely know as the biggest, maybe top three things that could increase somebody's chances of getting breast cancer. This is a really interesting question because a lot of people assume it's things they can fix but most of the risks for getting breast cancer are out of your control. The biggest risk is being a woman. One in seven women or eight women will get breast cancer in their lifetime, whereas one in 300 men will get breast cancer, simply because women have breast tissue. The second biggest risk is getting older. And that's because cancer arises when mutations happen in the cells. And when your cell is growing and growing over time, the more times it divides, the more likely it is to go wrong. It's why your hair goes gray generally when you're old, not when you're young. The longer you live, the greater the risk of that mutation happening. So it's generally a disease of elderly women. The third biggest risk factor is having dense breasts. And that just means there's more breast tissue in your breasts and compared to a fatty breast. But you can't do anything about that. It's out of your control. 
a lot of the time it's just bad luck. Now, a lot of it, it seems to be that it's happening more and more in young women. And I think that's because young women are on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. But most of the women in their 50s and 60s and 70s aren't. However, there are things you can do to reduce your risk of it happening. Liz, are there um, any links with um, things like HRT or the contraceptive pill um, or even pregnancy versus non-pregnancy um, that might increase the risk of developing breast cancer at any point? There are. So studies have been done looking at millions of women and have kind of observed trends. And we think breast cancer is more likely in women who've had a longer exposure to estrogen in their lifetime. So if you have never had a baby and you've never breastfed, you've had unbroken periods through all your life, you are more likely to get breast cancer than a mum who's had a 10 babies and breastfed them because she's not having periods for those 10, 15 years. We also know that women who have taken the contraceptive pill for more than five years or HRT for more than five years have an increased risk of getting breast cancer because they are having more hormones than a woman who isn't. But that increase in risk is actually really, really, really small. It's maybe an extra half, say one in a thousand women may get breast cancer without the pill and the pill may make an extra, like one leg of a person. It's really, 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 really small. So they may say your risk doubles if you take the pill when you're 20, but because your risk is tiny, the risk from the pill is still really, really tiny. And the pill is, a, hormonal contraception is really, really important to stop women having unwanted pregnancies, to control painful periods, to control acne, the same as HRT being a very, very good drug for people struggling with a menopause. So I'd hate people not to take those tablets based on the risk of breast cancer. There are other things they can do which have a much higher impact on reducing their risk. You, you have sometimes talked about the effects of alcohol um, and the links with breast cancer and some of the research that's coming out is now suggesting that that has a big impact in increasing somebody's chances of breast cancer. Um, I understand it's about 20% increased risk, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I think it depends on how many units a week you drink. And it doesn't matter whether you have a bottle of vodka on a Saturday or you drink it slowly throughout the week. It's the amount you drink in total. Mm -hmm. And I think if you have two units a week, your risk goes up by about 10 or 15%. If it's three units a week, the risk goes up to 30%. Alcohol is a carcinogen. It causes cancer, it causes mutation in cells, and it has been linked to increasing risk of breast cancer. There are studies that show the more you drink, the more likely you are to get it, and the more likely it is to come back. Now, it's a bit like the pill. A 20% increase in risk when you're 20 is still actually really, really small. But when you're 30 and you're 40 and you're still drinking heavily, your risk of breast cancer goes down to one in 65 women. So a 20% increase in that is actually quite a lot. So really one of the best things people can be doing in their 30s and 40s is significantly reducing their alcohol intake or even considering completely stopping altogether potentially. Yeah. Is. So after, after breast cancer, we suggest five units a week. Um, and I still have a glass of bubbly when I feel like it, but it's, it's every now and again. It's not all the time. Um, yeah, it's just being, imagine if you told me when I was 20 to stop drinking as a medical student, I'd have ignored you because that was the culture. Again, you don't listen to it when you're young and you're fearless. But I think we do need people to know that al alcohol causes cancer. That's right. And I think um, if we could talk to our younger selves, I think it would probably um, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, to, to live life again and just see what, whether, whether we'd make I know. 
Right, but then you think of the, got the hangovers I had and even that wasn't enough to stop me drinking because you go back out the next <laughs> night and do it again because everyone else is. Yeah, absolutely. So with the alcohol, um, yeah. what we do, um, similarly with that in terms of the research that's coming out is all about gut health. Is there any evidence to suggest that poor gut health could be a contributor to either triggering or being a bit of a risk factor in breast cancer? I don't think the research has been done to look at breast cancer. I think they've done an awful lot of things with bowel cancer. Mm -hmm. And I think gut health is important. Um, people are talking about fecal transplants as ways of helping people in the future. And I think we basically don't eat a healthy diet. Most of us eat a lot of processed food out of packets, can't be bothered to cook. So we're not getting the natural fruits and veg that would give our gut the normal bacteria. And I think a lot of it will be going back to trying to eat a normal, boring, basic, healthy diet. So you don't need to spend the money on the, the yogurts and the enzymes and the powders. Um, because the colon is one of the biggest removals of toxins in the body. And if you are eating shit and it's clogging up, it's not going to work properly. Yeah, exactly. And they've looked a lot into, um, we treat Parkinson's patients and they know that there's- Yes. Um, and the fecal transplants is one of the more modern approaches that they're looking at mm. to treat or slow the progression of the disease. So. It's interesting how all these long-term conditions are linking together with common factors that are contributing to the progression or maybe even the onset yeah. um, diseases as well. So that's really interesting too. So um, do you think consultants promote um, the use of things like probiotics after cancer treatments, during cancer treatments? Does it interact with any of the um, treatment modalities for breast cancer? I never discussed it with any of my breast cancer patients. I wasn't aware of a link. I actually didn't realize patients wanted to know what to eat after cancer because I just thought they would carry on eating a normal diet. I think with, after bowel cancer, you may be given a specific diet or told what to eat, depending on what part of the bowel you've had removed. I think there's still, there's a, what's the word? There's a bridge that needs to be made between what we definitely know for certain through proven trials and what people are saying works based on testimonials and making sure that it's, if we're recommending something and it's based on thorough research that will make a difference. So patients aren't spending money on things they don't need. And like you said um, previously, that actually sometimes it comes down to basic nutrition and exercise yeah. and healthy yeah. living, isn't it? And I think there are so many anti-cancer diets, so I'll cure your diet if you have super green juices and smoothies and eat all of this. And actually a cancer diet should be healthy processed plants, vegetables, fruits, with a little bit of, you know, meat if you want and a bit of fiber. And because people are suddenly having a load of fruits and vegetables, they are eating healthier by default, but they don't need all the super antioxidant stuff. It's just getting more fruit and veg in. Yeah. Yes. And so that doesn't sell very well, does it? <laughs> exactly. And um, some, yeah, absolutely. It's not so trendy, is it, to, to go no. a normal basic diet. Um, and I think people are so desperate to try and help themselves that yeah. they can get misled by some of the marketing um, that's out there. And they feel that if they are buying that extra special. Um, yeah, you great. want, I mean, I, I'm guilty myself. You want a quick fix. You want hope. You want to feel in control. I know the doctors can't tell me 100%. My cancer won't come back again. But what if this turmeric supplement did? I'll buy it. I'll try anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas your doctor wouldn't try any treatment on you. I think that's the difference. With the um, sort of health and wellbeing side of things, mm. um, for those people who perhaps have had uh, breast cancer treatment or surgery, are there particular exercise regimes you would 
recommend or would you generally say that people should include a mixture of aerobic and strength training and you know a bit of mobility flexibility work or any particular things yeah with that there are so I think the first thing that happens for anybody who's had breast surgery involving armpit surgery is to do shoulder exercises to get your arm moving and that is really really important and you kind of need to do them every day for life and that's to get your arm moving so you can get your arm above your head to stop cording to get that stiffness. I still do mine every day, five years down the line, because the scar tissue can get stiff. That's really, really important. International guidelines now state that every cancer patient should be doing really from diagnosis until for the rest of their life, aerobic and strength training. So a lot of doctors won't know this and don't know how to safely prescribe it because I didn't get electron medicine at medical school. And on exercise at medical school and I may know how to treat someone healthy like you but give me someone with COPD who's had breast cancer and diabetes I'm like yeah no hang on I haven't got a clue just sit on the sofa you should be doing aerobic exercise three times a week that gets your heart rate up so you're hot and you're sweaty and you're breathing quickly and it should feel a bit uncomfortable and then you should be doing some form of strength training and that's really important after breast cancer because if your treatment makes you menopausal you could lose your bone mass your bones can get weak. There's a risk of osteoporosis and it doesn't need to be done in a gym. Goodness, during lockdown, I trained with videos and resistance bands and just press ups and lunges. It's really, really important. Not only does it reduce the side effects, mental and physical, it's the best thing for fatigue, even though I didn't believe it at the time and I knew they were right. It also can reduce the risk of recurrence by up to 40 or 50 percent. So that's something you can do that you can take control back. The hard part is finding people like you guys who say, well, we know what you can do after cancer treatment. We know how far to push you. Yes, you can do this. That's the hard bit of getting accurate, sensible advice. So in terms of the, you mentioned about you can get other lumps in the breast, which might not be cancerous. Um, what, are they hormone driven and how many types are there? Are there like so many different types of benign lumps that um, will just disappear on their own or maybe appear during hormonal cycles and then disappear again? What's the kind of um, research on that? There are basically four lumps that you can, you can get in the breast. The lump that you get when you're young in your teens and early 20s is called a fibroadenoma or a breast mouse. And it's like a little bit of normal breast tissue has just grown and it's mobile. You can move it around the breast. That's why we call it a breast mouse. They are normally completely healthy, completely normal, not cancer, and we leave them alone. They, norm they may be there for life, um, but they normally just stay there. If they start to grow, we do re remove them just to make sure they're not becoming anything else, but they're very common. So a lump in a young girl in teens, 20s is probably a bit of normal breast tissue that can be left alone after an ultrasound scan. The next common lump people get in their 30s and early 40s are cysts. And that can feel like a balloon. So all both of these lumps are smooth, round. A cyst can feel like a marble under tension. Uh, you, and what we do is when they're very sore is you just drain it. You pop a needle in and take the fluid away like deflating a balloon. They're very common. Sometimes they'll come back a couple of months later and I get women that would come in every three or four months. Me again, can you pop a needle in it? I had lots of tiny cysts in the breasts. It's kind of fibrocystic diseases and normal change in the breasts in your 30s and 40s as the body is realizing you're probably not going to get pregnant. And they can give you that breast pain when they fill up and then they go down again. The third lump that a lot of women, not a lot, some women have is a tiny lymph node because there are lymph nodes in the breast, often at the very edges, especially on the edge by the armpit. And they can just feel like really small little peas and they're normal left alone. 
And then the worrying lump is a cancer. And cancers often feel irregular. They're not smooth, they're not round edged. Um, and that's one way of kind of working out, is this a good lump or a bad lump? Right, okay. So when people are checking their breasts, they're looking to maybe see if that lump is mobile or if it's staying static or staying still yeah. in that area. That's but I would I would still say anyone who has a lump, we we all know there are women in their 19, age 19, 20 that can have breast cancer. And my hands are great, but that's why I use an ultrasound and a mammogram to double check because my hands aren't 100 percent proof. So if you've noticed a lump in your breast and it's still there for three or four weeks, ideally, if you're young, wait for a cycle. Has it changed? Has it gone away? And it's still there. You need to get it checked out because of the mental aspect that bell in your head is going but it could be it could be it could be you can't function so going and get it checked out that peace of mind is often just the best thing and it can be so rapid to have things checked um at the yeah in the, in the sort of rapid access and things so in a breast clinic now you get everything done on the same day you may be there for a couple of hours but you'll be seen by a doctor or nurse you'll get an ultrasound you'll get a mammogram if you need it if they're worried they'll do a biopsy at the same time and you get the results a week later yeah I mean it's it's brilliant isn't it so yeah I'm really thankful that that's available to us and, and keep checking on a regular basis getting to know your own breasts is actually a really important message too is it so you can identify changes or yeah. know if things appeared suddenly um yeah absolutely do you know how long um the typical breast cancer takes to develop is it a slow developing um system in terms of it starts from a calcium deposit and it develops or is it are they more rapid over what kind of time frame do you do you think um they can they can start so we we can never tell any woman how long her breast cancer has been growing because you don't you don't look at the breast or the world we think for like the slow growing er positive breast cancers it can take five or ten years for breast cancer to develop we know a bit of that from women who have mammograms every three years because cancers can be seen in between those mammograms. Some cancers are much more aggressive and they do grow much more quickly. Um, it's almost you get to a certain size and they really start to grow and they, they could appear in months. Um, so it's really hard to tell. And that's why we say don't wait. Don't wait three or four months with a breast cancer because we just don't know what it is and how fast it's growing. But generally, it takes a good five or 10 years for the breast to develop that mutation to start to change. But women will often just notice it overnight. I did. I swear I looked in the mirror and there was a lump in my cleavage that wasn't there before. And I say it's a bit like when women are pregnant. The cell is slowly doubling in time. And one day you can't see it. Then the next day women are suddenly showing. And it's a bit like that with the breast cancer. It's just suddenly got big enough for you to be able to see or to feel it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's an important message again, isn't it? So keep <clears throat> keeping a good eye because that's going to be the first sign. Yeah. Um, you can tell if something's appeared. And, and that's probably where you, you say about having your arms on the side of your hips and pushing the chest yeah. out because yeah. that will bring that, that structure to the surface and it will make it more easily identifiable. Um, and in terms of the different types of breast cancer, so you, patients will often come in um, sometimes they don't always understand the the different types i don't know if you've got a quick kind of summary or category system that you can kind of go well there's these rough types which would be really helpful to the listeners i think i see what i can do so there are so many different ways to classify breast cancer so the first is which bit of the breast it comes from and there are three there is ductal cancer which is the commonest cancer that comes from the milk ducts in the breast and that's about 80 percent of breast cancers 15% come from the lobules in the breast tissue, 
that's called lobular cancer that looks different on a mammogram because it tends to grow in sheets rather than forming a thick lump. Then you have inflammatory cancer, which is about 5% of breast cancers. And that's cancer involving the lymphatic vessels in the skin of the breast. And that can mimic mastitis and the breast can look like a red, angry, inflamed, painful rash. You can also get cancer of the nipple, which is called Paget's disease. But basically, does it come from the, the skin and the fat of the breast, the ducts or the lobules? Regardless of where it's come from, the treatment is exactly the same. It's all based on how big the cancer is. The next way to classify them is based on your receptor status. And we test breast cancers for three things. We test them for estrogen. We test them for progesterone, which is like a backup to make sure the estrogen is accurate. And we test them for Herceptin. And you can be positive or negative for all those three things. But the common ones you hear about are ER positive, HER2 negative, mm -hmm. and then ER positive, HER2 positive, and then triple negative. And that's just telling us what your cancer, what makes your cancer grow so we can target treatments to stop it coming back. And after um, somebody's had treatment, um, I hear kind of conflicting information from depending on who the patient's seen about whether they should use a particular deodorant after breast cancer, whether it's yeah. a non-aluminium um, based deodorant. What's your take on that? What's the information on that? So this is really... I love this. Um, there are lots, well, not, there are online influencers who say that deodorants cause breast cancer. They're not safe. You shouldn't use them. And it's rubbish. Whether it's an aluminium-based antiperspirant or a deodorant, they are completely safe. However, if you are having a mammogram and you use a antiperspirant with aluminium salts in it, it can show up as tiny white flecks, which might be mistaken for breast cancer. So we say don't use deodorant before you have a mammogram. Another reason your breast care nurse will tell you in the beginning to use a non-metallic, organic, biologic, what's natural, a natural-based deodorant like Mitchum's is because when you have radiotherapy, that can really irritate the skin. It can cause burning. And if you've had um, armpit surgery, the scar may be soft, sore and healing. So we'd say use a natural organic deodorant whilst your scar is healing, whilst you're having radiotherapy, because you don't want to irritate that wound. But when the treatment's done, you can use what you like. You may not need to use it because actually after my radiotherapy to the armpit, it kind of destroyed some of the sweat glands and the hair follicles. So I don't really sweat from the one side. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, I've heard patients say that as well, actually, um, that they don't sweat as much and they feel they no. don't need to use deodorant on, on that no. side, or even probably on both sides eventually. So whether it's a balancing act to it. Yeah, okay, that's, that's really interesting. So, I mean, there's a whole load of information there that you've shared with us, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this will be able to take so much information and just be confident with what they're doing is the right thing, whether that's them, they're checking now their breasts more regularly, or if they're going through that journey and they're having breast cancer, that what they're doing is the right thing in terms of what they're using afterwards and, and what they can do in preparation for radiotherapy. So, that's fantastic. I'm sure we're going to be doing more of these podcasts asking you, there's a whole load of things we're going to be covering, I'm sure, in cancer and rehabilitation, exercise and lots of other topics that I think most patients would find really beneficial to listen to. Um, you've also written a fantastic book um, and you, uh, you, you do other podcasts too as well. So tell us a bit more how people can find out where to find you and what you've been doing. I will do. So I wrote The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, 
um, because I bought 20 books written by patients and realized I knew nothing and I had all these questions. So that was the book I wished I'd had when I was diagnosed. The second edition is coming out now. My podcast is called Don't Ignore the Elephant, where I talk about the stuff that no one else really talks about, like sex and death and marriage and cancer and grief. So really interesting guests just sharing my story and hearing that of others. And if you type my name into Google, you'll find me on social media or YouTube. I'm always writing and talking about the latest stuff. So absolutely. And if and if they can't find you there, they can find you at the 5K your way with us. They, they can. Seriously, I can't stress this enough. Whenever I exercise, I'm not a cancer patient. I'm just Liz. And there's something about doing it with a community of like-minded individuals where you can just chat and natter and you think, 10 o'clock, my exercise is done. So find the one near you and go and sign up. It's brilliant. Absolutely. And if anyone's in Suffolk, they can come to the one at Nelson Park, can't they, with us on the Definitely. Saturday of every month. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Liz. Um, as ever, it's always fascinating talking to you and we always learn something whenever we talk to you. Um, so thank you again for taking your time to come and talk to us today. Oh, thanks for having me.